The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Bringing Precision Lung Cancer Care to the Perioperative Space. How to Maximize the Impact of EGFR-Targeted Therapy in Resectable NSCLC. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash PUM 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Um, thanks so much for joining us. I know that the main session in the presidential talk is still going on, so hopefully more people will trickle in as we go. Um, don't take it as a lack of interest in Dr. Shu, who is my excellent uh, uh, colleague here from Columbia, who's going to really, uh, I think, hopefully shed some light on bringing precision lung cancer care to the perioperative space, how to maximize the impact of EGFR-targeted therapy for resectable non-small cell lung cancer. So as I said, I'm here with uh, Kathy Shu. She's an associate professor of medicine and director of thoracic medical oncology at Columbia in New York. Um, I'm Brendan Stiles. I'm a thoracic surgeon at Montevere Einstein in New York. So the goals today, um, in today's session, we're going to leverage some case reviews and bring contextual discussion to the relevant data to highlight um, the importance of conducting biomarker testing to identify patients with resectable non-small cell lung cancer with EGFR mutations. We're going to talk a little bit, actually in depth, about the evolving evidence supporting the use of EGFR-targeted therapy in resectable non-small cell lung cancer, and talk about some of the updates that are on the horizon. Um, We'll engage in best practices for multidisciplinary collaboration to integrate EGFR-targeted therapy into treatment plans for appropriately selected patients. So I'm going to turn over to Dr. Shu, who's going to take us through a case. Thanks, everyone, for having me here. My main uh, COI today is that I'm a medical oncologist, so thank you all for having me here. speak here at your, uh, t- at your nice conference here. So I'm going to start briefly with a case. We're not going to go through in detail, but we'll, we're going to come back to this case afterwards. So um, she's a patient of mine, a 64-year-old woman. She was a never smoker. She first presented uh, with COVID-19, and her chest CT showed a 3.4-centimeter left upper lobe mass. Uh, we got a PET scan, which showed that it was indeed um, hot, SUV of 5.3. The pleura looked normal. There was no mediastinal or hyalur lymph nodes, no sign of distant disease. Um, an EBIS was performed and did not reveal any suspicious nodes. And a transbronchial biopsy of this mass showed invasive lung adenocarcinoma. Now, a little wrinkle. The NGS panel reveals an EGFR exon 19 deletion. We're going to ask you the same question again. Knowing this, does this change anything? Do you want to, one, take her to the OR, uh, two, refer her to medical oncology, uh, or three, I am not sure? So actually, uh, she is taken directly to the OR, um, and she had a left vat's upper lobe. It revealed a 4.4-centimeter invasive adeno, moderately differentiated, uh, extending into visceral pleura, and multiple lymph nodes were involved, including two level 5, one level 7, and two bronchial. So she was staged as a PT2BN2. With that, we are going to start our program. We will come back and talk about this case, and we'll see if any of your answers change, and we'll review some um, some of the data. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Shu. That was a tough one, right, because there wasn't chemo and OC, I was thinking. So it'll be interesting to see how we do there that is not, together. There is not necessarily a correct answer in there. Exactly. We'll talk about right. it. There could be many right answers. Um, so let's talk about EGFR mutations. And probably, and the the rates and prevalence obviously depend on where you are, obviously in the world. 
But generally, um, across different stages of non-small cell lung cancer, and these are um, U.S.-type patients, stage 1, 20%, stage 2, 18%, 3, 18%, 4, 26%. But I think the message here is that it's really consistent across stages. And so this is a, a high pop proportion of our patients that we have to think about. And increasingly, we have to think about them as we manage them through the whole space, from diagnosis to preoperative treatment to adjuvant treatment. But there's gaps in biomarker tests. And many of you are probably aware of this, right? And we didn't really have to think about this in the surgical side, but the medical oncologist has been thinking about this for a while, where it seems so obvious because they wait to start treatment until they get the molecular testing back. But you see that frequently that testing is not done. Um, and it's not done in a, on an NGS pattern or a platform typically, but often even, and I forget if this slide has it, that even when it's done sometimes patients aren't often treated to the actual testing. But particularly relevant to this talk, you see that rates of EGFR testing at these time periods from 2018 to 2020 still sort of hover around the high 70 benchmark. So even in the stage 4 setting, we're not getting to the types of biomarker testing that we think that we need. This is compounded by the problem in the adjuvant space. So biomarker testing for us, if we, if we have the process in place, it should be relatively easy, right? We've taken out the whole tumor. We don't have to worry about the tissue acquisition issues that they do in the stage four space. But we've got to identify the patients who are eligible for adjuvant therapy in the first place. That gets to the nodal issue that we talked about and that was discussed extensively at one of the sessions this morning. Do we do a good job with the lymph node dissection? But then we've got to get them to adjuvant therapy, Right. And that's no offense to Dr. Shu, but that's increasingly on the surgeons, right, to sort of set that idea up and to sort of put the plug in their head to tell them that there might be lymph nodes, to tell them that that's going to be part of their journey. And particularly for the case that we, that we showed, if you're going to start with a tumor that's about four centimeters, you know that somewhere along the way that patient has a high chance of lymph node disease, and they're probably going to need adjuvant of some form regardless. And this is the VIOLET trial. This is a Dr. Eric Lim's trial. You've all probably seen it. And, you know, the trial was really set up to be VATS versus OPEN, Remarkable, right, that the patient's randomized to do that. But I, and that, in theory, should be a pretty incentivized patient population. If you think about who they are, they're saying, hey, maybe open surgery is better oncologically. So they've had lots of discussions about sort of the value of what we do and the long-term oncologic effects of these things. But yet you still see that of those eligible for adjuvant therapy, the eligible subset there on the second line, only about 50%, 46% in the open surgery arm were able to actually get there and get that, that adjuvant therapy in this group of motivated patients. Now, some of this may have been the sort of uh, underwhelming enthusiasm for adjuvant chemotherapy, and I suspect it will be different to patients you can offer an adjuvant-targeted therapy and and a pill in particular, but I think it's interesting to see how we think about adjuvant and can we count on adjuvant. And this, again, this highlights the low rate of adjuvant uptake, but also you see that the, it's on here somewhere, adequate lymph node dissection, which, again, we spent some time talking about this morning, was only performed in 53% of cases. So maybe we're missing opportunities to first diagnose patients eligible for adjuvant therapy, but second, to actually deliver that adjuvant therapy to these patients. And you can see that the, of the patients in the Alchemist screening study, you can see the, the stage distribution there. I'm sorry, this is Alchemist. I missed that on the switch. So this is the patients who are eligible for adjuvant but didn't enroll to one of the arms. So again, a motivated patient population. So we're going to go back to the, the master class portion, and I think I'm turning it over to the master here to go through the data. So uh, most of our time today is going to be talking about ADORA, which was a big phase three double-blind study that was performed a few years ago. Um, this looked at patients with completely resected stage 1B, 2, or 3A non-small cell lung cancer, and they could have had chemo or with or without adjuvant chemo. So they came to us afterwards. Um, and they had to have an exon 19 or an L858R, so your classical EGFR mutations. 
and they had to have had a complete resection, negative margins, and uh, they were stratified by their stage, the type of EGFR mutation, and race. And then they were randomized one-to-one to osimertinib 80 milligrams daily or placebo once daily. And this happened, uh, continued for three years. Um, the primary endpoint was DFS, disease-free survival, um, in stage 2 to 3A patients. And um, the secondary endpoint was disease-free survival in the overall population. So this trial was, you know, really a outstanding success here because we see that the DFS in on the left you see stage two to three A disease, and um, the hazard ratio for this was zero point one seven. So on that Kaplan-Meier curve, you can see the the curves really uh, diverge in a way that we don't typically see. So the patients who were getting the osimertinib in the blue up, up top had a much lower chance of uh, disease recurrence or death. So that hazard ratio of 0.17 means that there was an 83% reduction in risk of recurrence or death. And if you look on the right, that's for stage 1B to 3A, um, and it's similarly impressive. The hazard ratio there was 0.20, so an 80% reduction in the risk of disease recurrence or death. And, I mean, numbers like this you see... Once in a once in a blue moon, I would say. So okay, so that was out, and now th- these numbers are kind of the most recent uh, data cuts from ESMO 2022, and you can see that it's the DFS in stage two to three A is still very impressive. The hazard ratio is 0.23, and this is at 50% maturity, um, and. In the overall population, same type of thing with a hazard ratio of 0.27. So you can see that osimertinib arm really just does much better than that placebo arm. And I always like this, um, and I, I asked them to put this, put this in for us because, you know, a lot of times people ask, well, what does it tell us about adjuvant chemotherapy? And if we look at this subgroup analysis, really it's it's interesting because you see that kind of no matter what stage you are, whether or not you get adjuvant chemotherapy, the osimertinib arm is still better. It doesn't tell us that you should or shouldn't do chemotherapy. It just says no matter if you got chemotherapy or you didn't get chemotherapy, the osimertinib arm still does better. And that's if you're stage one, you're stage two, you're stage three. You can see it's all favoring the osimertinib arm. And then when we look across subgroups, right, we see that... OC was better than placebo and, you know, just about down the line, right? So it didn't matter if you were male or female, uh, young or old, if you were a smoker or never smoker, Asian, non-Asian, the stage, like we just talked about, the EGFR mutation. So typically we think of L858R patients as doing a little bit worse, and we can see maybe that there was some of that, but still they did better than um, with OC than with placebo. And again, with adjuvant chemotherapy, so that if you got adjuvant or you didn't get adjuvant chemotherapy, you still benefited from osimertinib. When we look at the updated DFS by stage, we see the same type of thing for 1B for stage 2 and for stage 3A, that the um, hazard ratio of 0.44 for the 1B, of 0.33 for stage 2, and for stage 3A, a hazard ratio of 0.22, which is really, these are remarkable numbers for us. Okay, so you say, okay, well, what about the patients who do recur? Where are we seeing the um, disease recurrence? 
And I would say the most common first sites tend to be lung, um, lymph nodes, and CNS in the osomer and the barm, which you can see here in blue. And um, again, here in placebo, you can see a, a similar type of thing. But the, the tornado plot really shows us how, how tight the osomer and nib side is compared to the placebo side. And this is really important because we know that lung cancer loves to go to the brain, and we also know that osimertinib has really good blood-brain barrier penetration. So one of the important secondary endpoints we said was CNS disease-free survival. And you can see here that um, the patients who got osimertinib had a um, lower risk of developing CNS mets, and that hazard ratio was 0.24. So... Um, we know that this is also benefiting our patients by, by hopefully preventing brain mets. All right, so you say to me, well, this all looks great, Dr. Shu, but is it really hard for these patients to take this drug for three years, and what is it costing them? So when we look at the um, AE profile, um, we can see that the most common thing with osimertinib is diarrhea, but most tend to be kind of low grade, and grade three to four is actually very low. The other things are paronychia, dry skin. Um, so rash and diarrhea tend to be the most common things we tell patients. Stomatitis as well. Um, and kind of an important one is interstitial lung disease, which we see in a small percentage, um, and also some cardiac things, which we also see in a small percentage. Now, um, I guess you know, okay, so are these mostly manageable? And I would say yes, because you would see here that 13% of patients in the osimertinib arm had to discontinue treatment. So, you know, I would say most patients are able to finish uh, the three years. There are some patients who have to come off because of AE toxicity. So um, after three years of study, planned study treatment, overall, there was a 77% reduction in the risk of disease recurrence or death with adjuvant osimertinib versus placebo which gave us a DFS um, hazard ratio of 0.23, and that was in the stage 2 to 3A population. Um, the median disease-free survival was 65.8 months in osimertinib arm and 29.9 months in the placebo arm. Um, in the overall population, that still held. So when you added in those 1B patients, we could still see that there was a significant disease-free uh, survival benefit. And again, it didn't matter whether or not the patients received adjuvant chemotherapy. They still saw a benefit. So sometimes I'll tell patients, you know, if they really can't tolerate the chemotherapy, sometimes I'll just cut out that chemo early and start them on the OC. Um, and then importantly, we said Osomertin demonstrated a clinically meaningful improvement in CNS-DFS. Um, and again, the safety profile was consistent with kind of our known established safety profile, and patients are able to uh, complete the course. So all of these data together um, really reinforce adjuvant OC as the standard of care for patients with EGFR-mutated stage 1B to 3A non-small cell lung cancer after complete tumor resection with or without adjuvant chemotherapy. And, and Dr. Stiles and I are really here today to kind of reinforce these with you because we as medical oncologists won't necessarily see these patients unless you send them over um, our way. And this is kind of a big thing with um, everyone's been asking about OS data, um, you know, and is it worth giving if there's only a DFS benefit and there's no OS benefit? There's a lot of debate in the medical oncology world, but 
Uh, we do know that Adora OS um, data will be presented this year at ASCO, so we're all really uh, looking forward to seeing what that the, what those numbers look like. Um, okay, so with that, I'm going to turn uh, it over to back to Brendan. He's going to talk about some other trials um, looking at early stage non-small cell lung cancer. Yeah, there's lots happening in this space, and I think you probably learned from the meeting. Um, lots of great talks yesterday about identifying patients at risk for recurrence. Heard a great talk from the JCOG authors about recurrence in that set. And then I admit I'm like blinded sometimes to stage one. I always think that my patients are going to do great. And then you see the presentation of the CLGB data this morning. You see that 30% of these patients are recurring. It's really interesting and sort of humbling to think about that um, sometimes for me. So I, I was sort of a skeptic in the 1B space. It'll certainly be interesting to see what the overall survival data shows. Keep ASCO on your radar for sure. Yeah, we've been talking a lot at this meeting about neoadjuvant therapy, and so obviously the question is, is there a role in the neoadjuvant space for this? And maybe that patient that Dr. Xu showed at the beginning with the sort of big tumor might be someone who we know that we want, don't want to put those patients on neoadjuvant immunotherapy um, because of lack of response. But what about a, a neoadjuvant targeted therapy approach? So this is a phase three trial that's already enrolling at stage two to three B, resectable non-small cell lung cancer with the common EGFR mutations, stratified um, by stage and also by uh, ethnicity. Um, It's a double-blind trial, and the arms placebo plus chemotherapy, three cycles, osomertinib plus chemotherapy, three cycles, or just osomertinib alone. So I think it's it's well-designed to answer a lot of important questions. Um, Does chemo add a benefit to osomertinib? What kind of pathologic response rates will we see with osomertinib alone versus OC plus chemo? And you can see the endpoints are NPR and PCR. And then I think it's nice because adjuvant is the investigator choice. And I think that that does allow for some real-world practice into it. And then we'll get EFS and, and OS eventually with that as well. So these are a couple of patients. Um, and probably uh, this was actually from David Jones and Neil Chudger, who now work with me, where they just described a couple of cases in the literature. I think there was a discussion about it yesterday. You know, it's not standard, right, to give neoadjuvant osomertinib, but we can probably all think of a couple of cases that we've thought maybe it's a good idea for and done it. And uh, in this publication in JTCBS Techniques, they just sort of describe sort of what it went, what kind of responses there were in some of these cases. I suspect we'll be asking all the same questions that, that we did about neoadjuvant immunotherapy. Does it make it harder? Does it take longer? Challenges like that. We heard a great talk yesterday um, about uh, neoadjuvant electinib, actually, that, that talked about some of the challenges there. So Adura, I mean, Adura 2 gets to that sort of blind spot that I was talking about, the kind of patients that we heard about from the JCOG authors from, from Nasser al-Turkey this morning, the CLGB. And the stage 1As, right, they're not eligible. So 1A2 or 1A3, the bigger tumors, after complete resection, um, pathology reviewed. And then they're going to be stratified by high risk or low risk, and again by race. And, and to, to sort of answer that question, does systemic therapy work with even earlier stage disease? And, you know, there's a lot of people out there wondering, are we pushing it too hard and, and are we you know, over-treating these patients? And obviously t- three years is a, is a fairly long treatment duration for a drug from a patient perspective. But to me, it sort of depends on the tolerability of the drug and on the side effects of the drug, which Dr. Shu will talk a little bit as we go. And interestingly, we talked, had these great talks yesterday about how do we define high risk. Um, it's a moving space, and it's probably going to be ultimately defined by CTDNA is my guess. But, but we heard a lot about pathologic predictors. David Jones talked about his sort of his algorithm for high risk, but for this, the purposes of this study, it's invasive tumor size greater than two centimeters, lymphovascular invasion, and then greater than twenty percent micropapillary solid. These these atypical subtypes that we talked about a little bit this morning. 
low risk is obviously defined as the absence of any high risk factors. And the thought was that, that high risk will comprise about 60% of this cohort. Oh, Dr. Stiles, before you move on, mm-hmm. we, got a, we got a question that said, how would you treat a stage 1A resectable EGFR positive patient? So is... Would something like this maybe a good trial for the, for a patient like that? Yeah, it's perfect, and that, that's a great. Actually, somebody had just actually asked that question too. So, you know, what would you do? I, I would put these patients in a trial, and I think uh, I, I think that that's the way to go. I think you know, it's a great conversation to have with patients. I find these patients to be typically more motivated. They sort yeah. of feel like they got an EGFR. They know where they got their cancer. They can blame it on something. They want to at least have a conversation about it. Yeah, I, I have agree. to say, I'm guilty of not sending one A's to to the to the <laughs> oncologist, but maybe it's something I have to think about. We have that recorded. <laughs> I'll put in a plug for Leader, and it's sponsored by the Lung Cancer Research Foundation. Um, an umbrella trial, really, to try to capture all drivers, and really, it's it's looking at testing, really. And I think that this will help sort of think about how we how we think about testing, but it does have a lot of trials tagged on to these specific therapies, and again, looking at major and complete path response rates. EGFR is obviously very prevalent and something that we see all the time, and again. Um, at Cornell, we did a study just looking at our patients with routine testing. It was over a third of our patients had EGFR mutations. And so, I, you know, you don't find it unless you look. And so I think that this really emphasizes that the more rare um, uh, molecular alterations, really, we're not going to see it single center. So it's got to be a big sort of trial like this where we sort of pool our resources together and really get surgeons there sort of leading the charge. So optimizing these. This is back to Dr. Shu, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So just one quick thing, which is that Dr. Stiles said he was sometimes not sending, he was a little guilty of not sending his EGFR patients um, to medical oncology, and that's recorded for posterity. But but the but the we got another question on there that said, you know, when do we send patients to see medical oncologists, or when do we as surgeons kind of discuss osimertinib with the patient? And I mean, I think that that's it's a it's a great question. Um, EGFR is getting more and more kind of diverse. There are some EGFR mutations that don't actually respond to osimertinib, so it's. It can be a little bit tricky if, if you just see GFR and say you're definitely getting osimertinib, but I think it's always a good thing to, to refer to your medical oncologist, even if it's early stage, very early stage, maybe they can put them on like a Dora 2 or, or something like that. Um, but it must help but, you if the surgeons talk to the patients a little absolutely. bit about it first, right? And yeah, probably absolutely. sets the stage. It's, yeah, it's, all, it's, it's always helpful if, if they say, you know, this is why we're sending you to see a medical oncologist. There may be other treatment options for you. So now that um, we're going to return, now that we've had, we're armed with all this info, we're going to return to this case. And so for those of you who weren't here originally, she's 64 year old. She's a never smoker and she presented with COVID-19 and a chest CT showed a 3.4 centimeter left upper lobe mass. The PET scan uh, demonstrated and she has a 3.0 uh, centimeter solid appearing mass. It's SUV is 5.3. Pleura is normal, no mediastinal or hilar lymph nodes, and no sign of distant disease. So here I'm going to ask you, Dr. Stiles, is this someone you would do mediastinal staging on, and why or why not? 
Well, it's a great. I would definitely do it now that I knew from the previous slides that it's positive. <laughs> well, you have to pretend you don't know yet. Yeah, it's a. Uh, um, some of you weren't here. I we went through the results in this, and this, it, it really just shows the inadequacy sometimes of clinical stage. And it's a central lesion, no bigger than two centimeters. And so I, lo- I think a lot of people in the room think that those at least deserve a really good EBUS. Um, if you know, metastinoscopy is not used as frequently, but I would certainly do um, do or have one of my interventional pulmonologists do an EBUS and work really hard. I think the other point about that, an EBUS doesn't mean just kind of look and don't really do anything. It means really get in there and biopsy, try to even go out and get some N1 nodes because I think those are um, increasingly important for how we think about the journey of these patients. With the so central tumor, relatively high SUV, you know, reasonable 15, 20% at least risk of microscopic nodal disease. Okay, so this patient did go for EBUS, but um, the interventional pulmonologist. Uh, didn't see anything suspicious, so did not do any additional biopsies. So you would try and maybe... So that was more like a regular pulmonologist and not an intervention-inclined <laughs> pulmonologist. Um, well, I think then if, if they've made a, a good effort, I wouldn't put the patient through another procedure. I think it's reasonable to proceed with upfront surgery in this setting if you, if you think if you're not suspicious for nodal disease. Okay. So, so the patient, um, the only biopsy she ends up undergoing is the transbronchial left left upper lobe mass, and it showed invasive lung adenocarcinoma. So knowing what you know, EBUS was negative, um, 3.4 centimeter mass. What would you guys like to do? So we actually do do, uh, we do reflexive testing on all of our lung adenocarcinomas. Um, That means we do EGFR, but we also do some of the other major um, markers. And I think that that's you know, more and more important nowadays with all of these new targets, with all of, you know, these new indications. Um, do you guys also? We do. Yeah. But how many people in the room, just maybe raise your hands, do reflexive testing on the biopsy specimen? Handful. You know, we and, and many other institutions have had this struggle, like, when do you do it? Do you wait? If they think they're going to get more, do you wait and save it and all that stuff? So it definitely comes into play as we think about how to manage these patients perioperatively. Yeah. So for her, actually, she had um, the NGS panel revealed an EGFR exon 19 deletion. Okay, so now we know she has a 3.4 centimeter mass, and she has an exon 19 deletion, but... No suspicious nodes, mediastinal or hyaluronic lymph nodes. So now what do we do? Does that change your management? This is the horrible thing, right? As surgeons, when you see when you've got them clinically staged is one thing, and then the path is completely opposite, right? It's a tough conversation to have with the patients. It's a bigger tumor right now. They're, it's over four centimeters and two disease. So this is... You're stealing my thunder. This I is tough. <laughs> but you don't so. have to have the first conversation. We have to have the first conversation. I told you you're going to be stage one. Everything's going to be great, and then you get this horrible disease. Yes, it's true. So anyway, as, as most of you said, um, we the surgeon decided to take her straight to the OR, you know, small small-ish tumor, no, no obvious nodal disease. Um, we knew she had an EGFR exon 19 deletion, but honestly, she probably wouldn't have even qualified for something like Neoadora. So she goes straight to the OR, and the surgeon performs a left VATS upper lobe, um, and there's a 4.4-centimeter invasive adenocarcinoma, moderately differentiated, extending into the visceral pleura, and there were multiple lymph nodes that were involved. There were two level 5s, one level 7, and two bronchial. So she was ultimately staged as a PT2B N2. And 
Dr. Stiles is right. I mean, it's hard for the surgeon to explain to the patient, I think, that now she's upstage to a stage 3A. But in some, in some ways, if you've had that conversation about staging that there might be a lymph node there beforehand, then it's not quite as bad when you tell them here. You know, with, so, I, I mean, I tend to tell all my patients, and probably almost all of you in the room do, right, that we're going to take you to the and we're going to take this out, we're going to take out some lymph nodes, there's an expert chance you might have lymph node disease. And so they really sort of hang on that idea, like, well, how are the lymph nodes, what happened with the lymph nodes? And it's, it's not as sort of disheartening when all of a sudden you tell them about pathology like this. Yeah, agreed. Totally agree. So now what do you guys want to do? So this patient was referred to medical oncology. Um, I saw her. Given that she was now upstage to 3A, I did recommend that she get chemotherapy. She actually tolerated all four cycles of adjuvant, cisplatin, and pemetrexid really well. She's under, now undergoing three years of adjuvant osimertinib, and she's tolerated it really well. I would say her only issues tend to be um, a little bit of you know dry nails and um, otherwise really no symptoms. She swims like a mile every day. So she's, she's doing very well. Do you only skip the chemo in frail patients? So I skipped the chemo in, like, if they're stage 1B, they're, or even if they're s- mostly in the 1Bs, I'll, I'll offer them just adjuvant OC. In the patients who are stage 2, we kind of talk about it, and the frail patients, I kind of just skip it. And the patients who are very motivated, I do give it. And in the stage 3s, I, I still offer them chemotherapy. I think chemotherapy is still proven, um, and there's nothing so far to say that you know, that not giving it is just as good. Um, so yeah, but it's a, it's a discussion that we have with the patients. So I guess as a surgeon, if you say to the patient, you could get adjuvant OC, don't tell them that they're not going to get adjuvant chemo. Okay. Um, I have another case and then, uh, Dr. Stiles has a case. So this one's, uh, slightly different. So now we're talking about a 71 year old gentleman, good health. And now we're saying this is a 5.8 centimeter mass, right upper lobe mass, um, abutting the mediastinal pleura and a 2.5 centimeter satellite lesion. And he has some right hyaluronopathy. And um, he's staged as a 3A clinically, T3N1. What do you think, Dr. Sells? Which one would you have chosen? Definitely mediastinal staging with the EBUS. I mean, there's clinical nodal disease, and I think this is a really critical one to stage the mediastinum, make sure that there's not N3 disease. I think it's, we don't do as much as we used to, but I think that's important too. I think, uh, you know, maybe I guess the people who chose interventional radiology maybe thought it's sort of peripheral, maybe hard for their pulmonologist to get to. So it does if you got negative nodes, then you might have to go back and do something again. But I think. This one with obvious clinical nodal disease should certainly start with the EBUS. Okay. So um, he gets an EBUS. Let's see if we can. Yep. So it's negative at 4R, 4L, and 7. 11R is consistent with adenocarcinoma, positive for CK7, CDX2, negative for TTF1. And um, no molecular PD1 was performed at that time. Um, but then the this, this patient was seen at an outside hospital. Which, who, they didn't have reflexive testing. But the surgeon actually said, uh, why don't you go see my colleague, Dr. Shu? And um, I saw him. We sent him for molecular testing first because he was this never smoker, and it revealed an EGFR L858R mutation. 
That's pretty good. I mean, I think you can make an argument for all three of those answers, right? If, if yeah. You, if you go back for a second, right? And you'll, you're going to talk about what you did. But, um, you know, I think you could say, hey, adjuvant, they get the benefit stage three. This is kind of a bulkish, you know, more alarming stage three. And so I, I like the idea of giving them the new adjuvant. Yep. I think you could say give them the three cycles of the new adjuvant chemotherapy because then they won't need it in the adjuvant and go to that. Yep. And then certainly if you have a trial available, I think that's a great option for this patient. Yep. But I think all three are, are you know, defensible positions. I agree. And not everyone will have access to a trial. So, right. you know, I certainly think that the other options are, are good options. But the point is I think that the surgeon, you know, sent him to me. And then we, and then we had a discussion about what we wanted to do. And so this patient was actually enrolled in Neoadora, which we do have at Columbia. Um, and he was randomized to neoadjuvant osimertinib, 80 milligrams daily. And uh, you can see after nine weeks, the mass shrunk significantly. Um, the satellite lesion also uh, decreased in size and avidity. And there was no significant change in the hilar lymphadenopathy. So he ended up going for surgery um, after the first after the nine weeks of treatment. He had a right VATS, right upper lobe, thoracic lymphadenectomy. Um, the surgeon did note there was some fibrosis from the induction therapy within the hilum, um, but the patient tolerated it very well, and he had some post-op atrial fibrillation. And ultimately, the pathology showed a 3.5-centimeter tumor, negative margins, with one hilar node affected out of 18 nodes examined. And the patient is now on adjuvant osmertinib. So Neoadora does neoadjuvant and then adjuvant. So I'm going to show a case, too. And some of you may have seen this case before, but I think it illustrates a couple um, good points for me. So 52-year-old Hispanic female, never smoker, um, really had a huge delay in her workup. It was having sort of cough and having pneumonias. And, and she had, you can see an endobronchial lesion. Everybody thought she had pneumonia, but was sort of regularly hemoptysized and, and went too long without getting diagnosed. Subsequently found to have, and you'll see some of the pictures, difficult to tell the size of the actual tumor, but 9.6 in one dimension. Um, mass, you see this is the bronch that shows the, the left uh, lower lobe bronch is completely obstructed. And she had a big bulky level 7 node that was positive by EBUS and was found also to have an L858R mutation. And so for me, uh, you know, looking at this and thinking about it, you can see I was completely blocking that lobe, so she's not using the lobe. And pretty bulky adenopathy. Um, brain MRI, which I think should be indicated in all these patients, was negative. And so then the question was, let me see what to do next. But, you know, I'll tell you, well, let's see what you guys say. So we gave her, you know, we were a little bit worried about her advanced disease, so we just gave her osomertinib, which we think would be standard of care in the stage four setting. We targeted eight weeks, but she ended up going out to 10 weeks, and she tolerated it great. Um, she had a great clinical response on imaging, and you can see the tumor shrunk quite a bit. And then this, you know, I'm interested to hear what, what people think. The endobronchial disease went down significantly. And so that takes it away from being a sleeve, takes it away from being a pneumonectomy potentially, I think, to being a lobectomy. And the question is, you know, how do we know what was disease there? Is there microscopic disease there? How do we think about that? But so we took her to the OR and just did a, a standard VATS lobe, and it was relatively straightforward. There was definitely some stickiness around the big node, and that was probably the harder part of the case. Um, but she did great, went home on post-op day three. Interesting questions about response rates in these patients, and you know, do they do they is it tumor static? Is it is it are we going to see the path response rates that we see with immunotherapy? She had a great response. She only had uh, uh, 0.9 centimeters of viable tumor, so she actually classified as a major pathologic response. She had one um, lymph node that still had positive, but just 10% viable tumor. So her past stage was T2A N2. 
we offered her chemotherapy and yep. osimertinib. Is that, that would be my vote as well. Absolutely. Awesome. So are we up to the Q and A? Yeah. So I think we have a few a few minutes yeah. left. We have a few questions from online. Perfect. Um, but we will also be happy to take questions ooh, from the mic. Oh, Dr. Spicer. <laughs> I would. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the the initial stage really speaks towards the prognosis, I think. So I, I would still favor giving um, the chemotherapy followed by the followed by the osimertinib. What do you guys think? Anybody in the room with a lot of experience operating after TKIs? Any of our Japanese colleagues, anybody in the room? You know, the question is, you know, how hard is it after neoadjuvant TKI? I don't know that I've done enough to really get the answer to that. A lot of Kate and others you know, speak to, others that I have seen or often after patients who got extended therapy and then were taking out some sort of oligopersistent thing. Well, our, our surgeon did say that there was significant fibrosis, um, but I guess... The point is that you can see fibrosis with any neoadjuvant treatment, whether it's chemo, whether it's immunotherapy, whether it's TKI. Um, I think that that's something that... So, so here's a question. This is a good one for you know, how surgeons think, right? So what if you have no trials at your institution and you risk losing the patient for referring elsewhere for the trial? Right? And surgeons will get judged by our volume and by, by our outcomes. So what do you think, Kathy? I, I mean, I think that that's a, it's a good question. Um, she tries to steal patients from us all the time and say, <laughs> oh, we've got this neoadura thing. Come over here. Um, you know, I, I always tell patients that a trial does not mean that it's better than standard of care. And I think that that's really important for them to know that this is why it's a trial. If I knew it were obviously better, then it would be the standard of care. So I think um, I, I, I really try and demonstrate equipoise. And I normally would say, um, you know, if you feel more comfortable with Dr. Stiles and then just go back to him, of course, right? Like, and a trial is not the only answer. Yeah, I think that's a good thing too. And I, but I think you can, you can make a reasonable argu- argument for, you know, it's easier with the earlier stages where you could go for adjuvant, right? And then you don't yeah. need, need a trial for yeah, that. That's but, true. but I think uh, the neoadjuvant space is definitely tougher. So here's a good question: The stage one, two, or just saying each of our patients strongly positive for PDL one. You know, what is the role for immunotherapy there, Dr. Shu? Okay, that's a that's a good question. So. For the EGFR-positive patients, they tend to be never smokers. For the never smokers, I really don't give them immunotherapy. It doesn't really um, benefit them. So even though sometimes you might see high pdl one scores on those EGFR-mutated patients, don't get tricked by that. Um, I would definitely still do the osimertinib and not the immunotherapy. But I, I do think that immunotherapy is in the preoperative space definitely has its place. And many of you might have heard Dr. Spicer talk about this the other day. And so, but not for your EGFR patients. There's some questions about radiation therapy. And obviously you have a lot of experience with chemo radiation um, patients and sort of get into treatment afterwards. Do you, do you any issues with radiation therapy and osimertinib for you? Um, 
you know, there is a there is a trial, Laura, ongoing that's looking at um, chemo RT with followed by osimertinib, right? And because I think we all feel that the Pacific regimen is not great for EGFR mutated patients, um, so I'm excited to see how that will pan out. I mean, I think we can all agree that there are some patients with very bulky N2 disease who just aren't going to be good surgical candidates, um, and for those patients, you know, chemo radiation might make a lot of sense. Somebody asked about how often EBUS is insufficient for molecular testing, and I think probably too often, I yeah. think. <laughs> That's a good it, question. I was on a panel and heard the group from Penn has done a lot about this, and they talk a lot about you know quantity not sufficient. And you know, maybe 20%, 30% of the time, it sounds like everybody thinks that their rates are higher, but I still think that that's a big, big problem. Yeah, I, I would say that I often come across insufficient material on an EBUS, um, which is frustrating, I think, for all of us because... The surgeon wants to get the patient booked and doesn't want to do another biopsy to get the molecular testing resulted. Um, so how do, you, how do you deal with that? And that is the patient too, right? They want to get in. You want to put them through another invasive yeah. procedure. Maybe it's going to be insufficient. So how do, you, how do you handle those conversations? I just had that exact case last week, and both the surgeon and the patient said that they wanted to go straight to surgery. The patient was a never-smoker. Um, they, you know, they just didn't want to undergo another procedure. So they went to surgery, um, and I'm seeing him on Thursday, so I'm not sure yet. <laughs> but I think that's that's a real the question about pathology and and kind of tissue and how do we be good stewards for tissue since there's limited tissue. I think is a really important one, and um, it's something that we're continuing to explore. But if if you're able to get reflexive testing, I think that's really important. If not, then really try and send to your medical oncologist if possible. Yes, please. Yeah, uh, I'm Dr. Galati. Uh, so if you look at the ADORA trial, and you're starting to see, especially the extended uh, out to 72 months, you start to see convergence of the curve. So, so does that mean we need to be giving the ADORA for longer? I mean, and what does it say about the mechanism of action of the ADORA? That's a great question. It was here. Somebody said, what's next after osimertinib? So I was going to actually ask Dr. Shu the same question. It's a great question. You know, at that drop-off after three years, what are you, do, what are you doing there? You see, you see it's sort of an inflection point. For sure. Years. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll have a lot of answers after ASCO, which will tell us about the um, overall survival benefit. I think, um, I mean, no one really wants to kind of indefinitely extend osimertinib, um, but... If we see an OS benefit at three years, I think that that's probably where we're going to stop. I, I do stop patients sometimes if they're unable to tolerate the drug. Um, but And what percent of patients is that, do you think, that are unable to tolerate? Pretty rare, right? Yeah, I mean, I think Adora was like they said 10% had to discontinue. Uh, I think I probably discontinue about 10 to 15%. Um, I don't know. I, you know, none of us really know, but I think once we have those OS numbers, we'll be able to, to make a more uh, educated uh, decision. So, so does that mean that the adura is just suppressing the tumor and it's sitting there waiting to, to strike again? Uh, that's, I think that's the question we're all asking. I, I, I don't think so. I'm a, I'm a believer. I mean, you, don't, you see those hazard ratios, and I just think that there's got to be some OS benefit. Um, but certainly with time, as we continue to monitor these people for OS, we can have more information on that. Great questions. Thanks. Yeah, very good question. Anyone else before you guys... Last chance to ask Dr. Shu, who came all the way here. Yes. Hi there. My name is Ario Safarzadeh. I'm a thoracic surgeon at uh, Mission Viejo. If you're doing adjuvant therapy without 
uh, chemotherapy. Is there a shorter duration that you can wait before initiating therapy, or how long do you typically wait when you're doing chemo with adjuvant versus just with Aussie versus just I mean, I have to say nowadays with you guys doing minimally invasive surgery, robotic surgery, I mean, I'm generally able to start patients on chemotherapy within four weeks. Um, and so OC, I kind of do the same thing. Um, if they're not getting chemotherapy, if they are getting chemotherapy, I try and start the osimertinib right after the chemo. Like I give them a couple weeks off, um, but generally not, they don't need much more than that. And Dr. Shaw, I forgot, but what's the wait period in neodura that you're supposed to wait before going to the OR? I don't know. You can often keep the TKI going right up to the OR, though. Yeah, right? I can't. I, I think there's a short pause, right. though. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for coming. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Shu, for Thank you. coming and sharing your knowledge remember with us. Remember to, to send your patients to your friendly medical oncologist, and we love working with you guys. It's truly like <laughs> one of the best best parts of my job. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash P-U-M 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.